Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to our firm's live virtual First Friday event for November 2023. Okay, before we get started, some of you may know that the Arizona legislature was in session in 2023, and the five new bills that pertain to associations all went into effect earlier this week on Monday. And we are going to be sharing with you right now the summary that our firm has put out regarding the five new bills. If you have any questions, you're always free to reach out to our firm to ask any questions. Um, We're also going to be spending a little bit of time at the Next Neighborhood Services seminar that we're going to be doing in our HOA Academy on the second Tuesday, excuse me, the third Tuesday of November. We're going to be talking a little bit more about um, the new laws and how they're going to impact your association and give you just five or six things that you must know about the new legislation. So be sure to tune in to our virtual HOA Academy with the Neighborhood Services Departments from around the Valley on the third Tuesday of the month at 11 a.m. And information on that is on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, let's pop right into the questions. Is an HOA loan where the lender has first rights on assessment receivables, is this deemed an encumbrance on the community? So just to back up a little bit, if an association is taking out a loan for whatever purpose, for a capital improvement project or to handle deferred maintenance in your community, typically what happens is the bank that gives a loan will need collateral. And the collateral that we typically see is that the bank will place a lien on assessments that are incoming assessments, so future assessments for the association. So like you said, assessment receivables. So is this an encumbrance? Well, it depends on how you define encumbrance. So yes, it's something that is worrisome if the association defaults on the loan because the bank would be able to take those assessments. So in that form, yes, it would be considered a lien on the future assessments. In my experience, however, um, I've never seen anything like this in the 27 years I've been practicing in this area, whereby association defaults on the loan and then the bank takes the incoming assessments to pay back the loan. But if that would happen, I'm sure there would be a receivership or something like that. So Bottom line, it is an encumbrance, in my opinion, on the community. The deed of trust, pardon me, the loan documents will be recorded and it would be an encumbrance that would be noticeable if somebody's looking for it. Okay, next question. We have a community member who has raised an issue about HOA common areas. We are not a gated community. We have two green spaces on the interior of our community that can be used for parks, but in actuality are water retention areas. The community member is concerned that a children's soccer team is using the green space in front of her house. It is not known if the coach or any of the parents of the children are members of our community. That said, she has raised concerns about HOA liability, safety, wear and tear on the grassy area that we in the HOA pay for to maintain. And we maintain it. What is is Arizona law regarding publicly used but privately owned and maintained HOA green spaces that are not within a gated community? So great question, lots of issues on this one. First things first, what I would do if I were your association is just have somebody from the association, whether it's a board member or the manager, you know, go and talk to the coach and find out specifically, tell us about this team. Are you members of the community? Is everybody on the team members of the community? Um, Did you know that this is private property? And try to find out more information. Is this formal? Is this informal? Is this a pickup game? And then from there, decide how you want to proceed. You may want to reach out to your insurance agent for your association to see what their position is on this. If you are going to allow this, you may need to get some extra insurance or they may say this is not something that's allowable. So I would start with a fact-finding mission first um, to determine who exactly this is. Are they a member of the community? If they're not a member of the community and they just found this space, obviously that's not going to be something that would be allowed. 
if they are a member of the community, they should come to the board with a formal proposal about what exactly they're doing and is there going to be adult present? And you definitely want to get your legal counsel and your insurance agent involved in that discussion. What is Arizona law regarding publicly used but privately owned and maintained HOA green spaces? that are not within a gated community? I mean, just answer that question. If it's not somebody who lives in your community, then it's obviously not going to be, it's going to be trespassing. So it would not be allowed. Okay, next question. Number three, our HOA is a 10.5 acre planned area development, pad seven of 39 homes and 3.5 acres of common area that could accommodate more homes if the pad could be amended and rezoned to R16. In two areas, it would even be feasible to sell two buildable lots outside of the HOA as they are in two corners. What is the process and likely success of doing this? What is the probable cost for the surveyor, architect's new site plans, legal fees? Okay, so I have been through this process before with two different associations, and it's not an easy process. I mean, there's a lot of different steps. So to give a short answer you're going to need to get, you know, whatever city, town, or municipalities approval. You're going to need to get your owner's approval to do this because the plat and the CCNRs will need to be amended. There's a lot of different steps here. You also need to get your CPA involved because if you sell this land, there'll be an influx of cash and you're a nonprofit corporation. So you want to have a plan to spend that cash the same year that it comes in so that you keep your nonprofit status and that you're not taxed on it. So this is, it's almost like a huge issue that we're trying to answer in in a very short period of time here. So you definitely need to get your attorney, get your owner's buy-in on this. You'd have to talk to your CPA and of course the city, town, or municipality to see if this is even possible. Lots of steps here to get to where you want to be. Approximate cost, I think it was about $15,000 in legal fees about a decade ago to handle this from start to finish for a different client. Okay, uh, next question, number four. We have a shared agreement between condos, us, and single-family homes with two separate HOAs. Under the lopsided agreement created by the developer, a single-family home controls the vendors and contracts and charges our fees and charges us fees. Their board refuses to communicate and meet with us, even though we've reached out for a meet and greet several times to try to establish a relationship. Their property manager is in cahoots with the developer. We are just trying to understand our expenses so we can create a 2024 budget. What rights do we have to information from the single family HOA? And can we submit a formal request for documents and receipts and attend their board meetings? Okay, well, I would have to see that shared agreement that you mentioned at the beginning of the question. It says that you have a shared agreement. I don't know specifically what rights you have under the shared agreement. I don't know if you're considered like a master and a sub and you're the sub and they're the master or if this is just generally everybody has their own CCNRs and you just share expenses, which typically when I see that, associations typically don't like that because one association is always feeling like they're overpaying and don't have a say in what's going on. What rights do we have to information? So what I would recommend is that you provide a copy of the shared agreement to either our firm or your attorney, and you come up with what rights do we have under the shared agreement? What rights do we have under our documents? And then go from there. Hopefully you do have the right to see the financials. I think honestly, if from my perspective, even if it's not in the shared agreement that you have the right to see or make records requests, I think you're well within your rights to request this information. And if they refuse to give it to you, I would have your attorney write them a demand letter. I don't know whether or not you're allowed to attend their board meetings just because I have to see your documents in that shared agreement to give you that answer. So bottom line, I would say reach out maybe one more time, get your attorney involved and have the attorney send a letter to them demanding the information. Okay, next question, number five. After two owners in our condo complex replaced their windows without seeking board approval, The board did extensive research and wrote detailed specs regarding the windows that were acceptable replacements. These specs were emailed at the owner several times and they were warned to get approval before purchasing any windows. We recently received a request from an owner who had ordered her windows before submitting the request. Then it was determined that her windows weren't a match, so it was denied. Upon a recent walk, we noticed that the owner had installed the denied windows. Anyways... FYI, the trimmer on the windows is too wide and sticks out like a sore thumb. Can the board now request that the owner remove the windows and replace them with approved windows? 
So these are always really difficult questions whenever there's something that's like really expensive, like windows, doors, roofs. I guess a couple things that I would mention. Okay, so you received a request from an owner, it sounds like, and she claimed that she had ordered the windows before submitting the request. Well, if I had to guess, that's against or contrary to your association's documents. She would have had to get approval and then submit the first submit the request then get approval and then install the windows. Now, obviously she's claiming that she had already ordered them and you don't have to approve something just because they did something, you know, that wasn't consistent with your documents. I do think that this is something that you can pursue legally. You should have your attorney send them a letter, have a firm send them a letter regarding the windows. These cases are kind of difficult. I'm not going to lie to you. I'd have to see pictures of it, how bad it is, because the jury is going to be looking at this in the future as part of a lawsuit. We want to make sure that it's something that is just would not be acceptable to anybody. And, and therefore, you would prevail if this goes to litigation. Another kind of creative thing you might want to do here is go to the ADRE, Arizona Department of Real Estate. They have a whole complaint process between owners and associations for matters like this and have the administrative law judge there rule that this is a violation. Might be a little less expensive and faster, although it doesn't have any injunctive relief, meaning that they can't force the owner to take the window out. But it would give the owner an answer that, hey, you're in the wrong here. And maybe then they would be more amicable to resolving this. But bottom, bottom line is I think you're in a good position on this. It's just it's probably going to result in litigation to get the owner to change it. Okay, next question, number six. Can you elaborate on the upcoming insurance requirements for associations? Is it for condos and single families or just condos? Okay, so I think what you're referring to is the new legislation regarding insurance that just went into effect on Monday. It only applies to condominiums. And what I would recommend is that you take a look at the sheet that we gave you the link for earlier in this presentation. And so it talks a little bit about just quick 411 on it is it says that owners have to follow a certain procedure if they want to make a claim on the association's insurance policy. And the procedure is you have to ask the association first and that the association denies it or doesn't take any action to make the claim. Then it gives the owner the right to make the insurance claim. The other thing that it talks about is what type of insurance is required for condominiums. And it's important that you, you know, look at what the documents say, your documents for your association, and also that you look at what the, the state law says in terms of what type of coverage is required, whether it's bare walls or all-inclusive. And again, it's going to be document-specific. So you want to go back and look at, hey, what do our documents require? And really, the, the biggest change on this law, from my perspective, is the fact that owners can now make a claim on their insurance, on the association's insurance, going through the board. If the board doesn't let them do it, they have a workaround that they can go do that. Question number seven, for associations that began a recall process prior to 1031, but the 30th day deadline is after 1031, is that board still automatic, automatically removed or do they fall under the old law and nothing happens to them? Okay, this is another good question about the new legislation. It's my understanding that your association began a recall process, right, before October 31st, but the 30-day deadline was after October 31st. So I guess from my perspective is I would err on the side of being safe and say that you would have to comply with that 30-day window, even though the petition was submitted before the effective date of the law. The meeting is actually needs to take place after the effective date of the law. And if you don't take it, take, you know, have that meeting, I do think that there's a very strong argument that that board should be removed because the law will be in place, you know, starting the 30th of October. And it says that if you have 30 days to, you know, notice and conduct that recall meeting, and if you don't conduct that meeting after the 30th day, how many 30s here? So if you don't conduct it by October 30th, which is the day that the new law took place and, and the 30th day is that same day or very shortly after, I do think that the board would be removed. So please be careful on that. Just a quick 411 on that for those of you who are listening in today. There's a new law that went into effect on Monday that says that if a board receives a recall petition to recall a board member or multiple board members or the entire board, they have 30 days under the statute, which is what the old law said, to conduct a removal meeting of the membership to vote on the removal of those directors. 
And if they don't do the meeting, they don't conduct the meeting, then the board, the entire board would be removed, regardless of whether they were subjects of removal petition or not. So it really gave some teeth to the removal statute and forces boards to not extend out having the removal meeting past the 30 days that's required by the law. Okay, question eight. Do I read it correctly that ARS 33-1227 requires a vote of at least 67% of owners in a common interest community to amend a declaration? A few years back, our HOA, by a vote of less than 67% of owners, voted to reduce the requirement to at least 51% of the owners can amend the declaration. Okay, so lots of issues on this one too. First things first, ARS 33-1227 talks about amendment of the declaration or the CCNRs and a condominium. Basically what it says is that the lowest amount that you can get to amend your CCNRs in a condominium is 67%. The association's documents can be higher than 67%, but they cannot go lower than 67%. So I'd have to take a look at your association. I don't know if you're technically considered a condominium or not. I'd want to look at the amendment to see how it was done and also to determine if you're actually a condominium as defined by the Condominium Act. But it does raise some questions here that it's something that you definitely need to be looking into as your association to make sure that you're doing it right. Now, if you're a planned community, you can they don't have the 67% requirement as the lowest amount you can go to amend your CCNRs. So it could be lower in a planned community. Now, let's say that your association did record something you know, and you are a condo that said that you lowered it to 51%, which would be contrary to what the condominium act says. What I would advise my client to do would be just go by the 67% and then undo that amendment, so to speak. Um, the best way to do that would be to consult with your attorney or our firm to help you record something saying that it was reported in error. Okay, next question, number nine. Would a property manager have the ability to work with another board member other than the president or treasurer to have large checks signed in 2023 for any community service that was completed the previous year. This street workmanship was not completed to satisfaction and we were never given the opportunity to negotiate because the check was signed in full by a board member from last year without notice to all the board members. Okay, this seems a little odd just from my perspective. I'm a little unclear. It seems like the person that signed the check is in fact a current board member. I don't know if this person has check signing authority or not. That would be a really good question. Are they on the signature card with the bank? If they aren't, then you really have an issue with the bank honoring this check if somebody signed it that isn't even you know, a signatory on the account. What I don't like here in this question is that it seems like the property manager went around the president and the treasurer to try to get a board member just to sign the check to pay the vendor. And that is just not good. To me, that shows that this is not a united board and that the manager is taking matters into their own hands. And it seems like there might be a high level of dysfunction here. And I don't like it because I think that if there was in fact an issue regarding the workmanship, the board should have been united and should have talked with the vendor. And if you had decided as a board not to pay the vendor until the issue was worked out, that should have been honored by the property manager. The property manager works for the board. And even though the property manager may disagree with something that the board's doing, they can disagree by putting something in writing, but they shouldn't be going around the board and getting the one person on the board who you know, is in agreement with the manager to sign a check to get the vendor paid. That just seems sneaky and not something that I think is a good idea. Okay, let's go on to the next question. Um, number 10, our townhome HOA pool is regulated by Maricopa County. Is there a legal means by which we can convert the pool status to a private pool that does not require county regulation and permits? No, you're gonna be considered a semi-private pool um, and not like a pool in somebody's backyard. So that, that can't be done. Okay, number 11, if there is a vehicle parked in the gated parking lot that is posing a security hazard, example, a truck parked with the ladder sticking out of the back of the bed into the parking lot, is notice to the owner required? And if so, how to give said notice if no one knows who the vehicle belongs to? This is sounds like a kind of a sticky situation. Actually, I've had a number of questions very similar to this in the past month. 
what I would do is if there is like a ladder sticking out of the back of the bed, you know, and it truly is like a safety hazard, the board may want to put like a large sticker or a notice on the truck indicating that this is a security hazard and that they, you know, need to please cease and desist from doing this. Um, if maybe you can find somebody who knows who the truck belongs to, you'd be, you'd be surprised that um, we see this with parking situations on streets all the time. Usually people know whose car it is or whose truck it is. So start asking around or maybe put something, a notice out to your community asking who the truck belongs to and that you're concerned about the ladder sticking out of the back as a safety hazard. The other thing that you could do is check your documents to see if you have any rights to, you know, like remove the ladder. You probably don't, but it's, I would check that to see if we have any special rights. You also could, our firm can help you get the, if you get us the license plate numbers, we can find out who owns the vehicle. If it's a vehicle that is in service, like it's working for like a construction company or something and the name of the construction companies on the side of the truck, we could call the company and let them know that this is occurring. And usually that takes care of it right away. So I think a lot of different options there. Put the sticker on the window saying, please cease and desist from doing this. Ask owners. Do you know whose truck this is? Check your documents to see if you have the right to put the ladder in a place that it's not dangerous anymore to the community. We can look up the license plate number of the truck to determine who the owner is and then contact the owner, or you can contact the business if they work for a business and the name of the business is on the side of the vehicle and ask them to please stop doing this. Okay, question number 12. Our second floor condos all have balconies, which are described as limited common elements. CCNR state maintenance and repair of these limited common elements, which does not include maintenance of the concrete slabs or finished flooring of the patio and or balcony areas. Is the responsibility is, let's see, that this isn't worded very well. Let's see, our second floor condos all have balconies which are limited common elements. CCNR's state maintenance and repair of these are limited common elements, which does not include maintenance of the concrete slabs or the flooring. Uh, I'm not sure this isn't worded very well. We have issues that if not properly maintained and waterproofed, there has been leaking into the garage below. Correction of this is not a structural issue, but a maintenance issue. We are currently redoing our CCNR's. Do you recommend that we add something to the CCNR's to make maintenance of the decks as clear as possible. 100% yes. We have this issue with the decking, patio area, balcony decking, when people put tile down and then the tile is porous, water gets underneath the tile and then starts leaking to whatever is underneath it. So most definitely I would recommend that you write something into the CCNRs that shifts the liability on this to the owners if they are if they do some sort of an upgrade to this area. Also plants leaking is another big problem um, that we see over watering of plants on a patio area like this can cause damage below. So definitely you can write something into your documents that's going to address this and the maintenance of this area as well. Okay, uh, number 13, being mindful of the costs involved in running off and mailing documents, what is the most effective way of discussing proposed changes in the CCNRs and bylaws prior to a vote? If an owner agrees, could the documents be sent digitally? So great question. We have a really good cheat sheet on this um, called Amending CCNRs, a five-step plan that I would recommend that you take a look at if you are interested in doing amendments to your CCNRs. So as one of the steps, to get to voting for changes to your CCNRs, we recommend that we notify owners of the changes by sending them a draft and asking for their input. And we also recommend that you mail out a full copy of the draft when you are um, voting on it so that the owners have a copy of the draft and know what they're voting on. So if we're trying to be mindful of the costs for mailing, I know you're a large community because I see your name here. You know, is there a way that we can save some money by sending out the changes to the CCNRs digitally or maybe even having them on our website? I mean, yes, of course, you can have, you can, you have to have a ballot that has to be mailed because that's what the law says, right? Either hand delivered or mailed by US mail when you're actually going to vote on it. But the ballot could refer back to the association's website and give people an opportunity to look it up on the website or you could email it to all owners if you have the emails and then just mail the ones that you don't have the emails for. So most definitely you can use 
technology to help get the documents out there for people to vote on. But a big but here is that you need their votes. And if you make it difficult for them to get the document or you make it an extra step, people may just brush it off and put it to the side and never actually do it. The fastest way to get this done is to actually give them a full copy of it when you get them the ballot. Okay, next question, number 14. Our HOA is structured for ages 55 and above to enjoy the HUD exemption against FHA discrimination based on familial status. Our declarations require that every occupied property have at least one household resident age 55 or above and have no resident of age 18 or younger. Our declarations do not explicitly state that the property owner must be 55 plus. If all over age 55 residents, whether owner or not, but typically 55 plus owners go away for several weeks or months, like temporary vacating the property, but intend to return, and one or more of the below age 55 household residents legally remain in the property during that period, since they will all be below the 55 plus age limit. This is a really good question. We see this come up actually from time to time when we have grandma and grandpa or whatever are living in the property, but they're only seasonal. And maybe their child, maybe their 30s, maybe their issue and they're in college or something, they stay 12 months of the year. And so really it goes back to what the language in your documents is and what do you consider occupancy? I know a lot of associations take a hardline rule that says if somebody is you know, not actually physically there that's age 55 all the time, you know, if they have somebody who's living with them who's not 55, that person who's under the 55 age limit has to leave if they're not there. It's really hard to prove that just obviously unless, you know, you spend a lot of time monitoring these people and, you know, which nobody does, right? But you run into more of the problem when the person leaves for the summer or the person leaves for six months and then the underage person is there. And then maybe they're having wild parties or they're not following the rules or whatever. I guess as a bright line rule, I would recommend that you notify your owners of the requirements, the specific requirements for your association. And if you see somebody violating the specific requirements for your association, make sure you send them a letter and document it. Get your attorney involved. Every association may have a different definition of occupancy. Somebody goes on vacation for a couple of weeks. I honestly am not going to tell you in good faith that I think you should be pursuing this by saying the 44 year old person is living there without them for two weeks. But if it's like six months or three months, it's a longer thing. That may be something that you do want to enforce. Okay, question 15. Is there a law against having a write in for board elections? A person decided to run after attending an emergency board meeting and hand delivered his resume to the community. The ballots were already sent out before this meeting. So this is a really kind of an interesting question. So first thing I would say is look at your, there is no law, okay, in Arizona that I'm aware of that covers this exact issue, but your documents should say something possibly about whether or not write-in candidates are allowed. And your board also could have said something when they were planning the annual meeting, like put on the ballot, or put on the request for candidacy forms that unless you submit your information to be a candidate by X date, we are not going to allow write-in candidates for this election. So if I were in the situation, I would look at what do your documents say? Do they allow write-in candidates? Your documents are probably silent on this. Every once in a while, we see something in there saying no write-in candidates, but most of the time it's silent on this. Second thing I would look at is, did your board say anything about this in the lead up to the annual meeting or on the ballot? Most likely they didn't. And so I guess my feeling on this is if it's not prohibited under your documents and the board didn't say anything about this prior to the annual meeting, I would let the person run as a write-in candidate. The ballot probably doesn't even have a spot for a write-in candidate, so I'm not quite sure how they're going to get their name on there. Usually what happens is if a person isn't on the ballot, people don't know to vote for them. And so this person is never going to win anyway. So it's probably a non-issue. Okay, question number 16. We've called a special meeting to vote on a special assessment. Since it is a duly noticed open meeting, may we use the occasion to introduce a motion and on a related question that doesn't specifically pertain to the vote for or against the special assessment? 
This is kind of an open-ended question because I don't know what related question means and I don't know. I mean, I guess from a purely legal standpoint, I would say that I think it would be bad judgment to try to push something through that isn't noticed to the membership that you're going to be discussing it. And also all of those mail-in or absentee ballots that you have, they won't be able to count it be counted towards anything that you may be voting on at a special meeting because there won't be any, there would not have been any spot for them to vote on it. So I would just say, don't do this. I think it's just opening up a can of worms and it's not a good idea. Of course, you can do an informal poll and see how people feel about something with those that come, if that's something that you want information or feedback on. Okay, we are on question 17. Looks like we have 39 questions this morning. The official records of most associations are maintained by the community manager who responds to records requests. There are other items that are not with the community manager. If the association uses Google or Microsoft Workspace, then all the informal working files and emails between the boards are likely kept in that workspace in shared folders or in individual board member folders. The association pays for the workspace. If the association does not use a workspace, then individual board members have their own files and their own email folders. If a member submits a records request for all the records pertaining to board action, including all emails between board members and all draft documents pertaining to the board action, does the board have to release those records? If the association uses a workspace and if the board members maintain their own separate files of documents and emails. Yes, likely you do, because even though the emails might be on like the board member's personal computer, it still is acting as official business. And just it's another reason why you really shouldn't be using email to make decisions by your board because it violates open meeting law. Okay, question 18. Does ARS regulations always take precedence before local HOA documents? So not always. You have to look at what the languages of the CCNRs and the languages of the statutes. The specific language of the CCNRs, or excuse me, of the statutes may trump the CCNRs. Like in some cases, it'll say notwithstanding any provision in the association's documents. When it says that, that means state law controls. You have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Okay, next question, 19. Beth, if you had to guess, how many HOAs are operating in the red today? Mm. Honestly, I don't know. I do know we've been talking about it internally as a firm. How's the economy? How's associations in the economy? How are things going? Are we seeing more delinquencies? Are we seeing more trustee sales? Are we seeing more bankruptcies? It's been pretty stable, I would say. Shockingly stable, frankly. Because ever since the pandemic, we have kind of been waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're starting to see a small uptick in the number of delinquencies, for sure. We are also starting to see an uptick in the number of trustee sales and bankruptcies. So, I mean, it's not substantial, but there was a lot of money being pumped into our economy. And I think that money is kind of running out now and not that many government programs anymore. So from our perspective... Things are a little bit worse, but I would not by any means say that, you know, there's a high percent of of associations that aren't managing their budget and able to live within the the confines of the budget. If anything, they might be deferring maintenance or not doing a capital project to make up for any shortfall that they may be having. Okay, next question, number 20. Would a board member or two resign when the board chooses positions for everyone, such as president, vice president, and have a meeting? Does that meeting need to be noticed? Uh, Yes, that needs to be an open board meeting and it should be noticed to the membership 48 hours in advance of the next board meeting. It's not an emergency that would call for an emergency board meeting that wouldn't have to be noticed. So open meeting, notice, properly notice the members to appoint officer positions for your board. Question 21, House Bill 2988. I may have that number wrong regarding control of streets within an ungated HOA. If the HOA provides the requisite number of signatures to the county to maintain control of the streets within the HOA, will the HOA lose current city services, such as snow removal, paving, and street cleaning, if we submit the notarized signatures to the county? This is a really great question. So I know, I do not think that, and you don't need a notarized, I mean, I think so we're all on the same page. 
this new law just went into effect on Monday. I would encourage you to take a look at our handout on the new legislation. And really the bottom line on it is that if you are a planned community and if the streets are dedicated to the city, town, or municipality, so that the city, town, or municipality owns the streets, but the association still has restrictions that say like no parking on the streets, et cetera. And if your CCNRs were recorded after a certain date or before a certain date, this new law is going to apply to you. So I do not think that compliance with this new law is going to that you'll lose your city services. No. Basically, the whole point of this law is whether or not the association is going to be able to continue to regulate parking and other street issues, speeding, that sort of thing within your community. This is not an issue about whether or not city services are going to be taken away. That is totally not the point of this law. The point of this law is to determine whether or not your owners still want you to regulate streets within your community if you're a planning community and the streets are dedicated to, to the public or to the city, town, or municipality. Okay, next question. In our community, we have a significant number of rental properties. In some cases, new property owners are registering their homes as second residences and then actually rent them out immediately. Currently, our CCNRs have a minimum 30-day rental period, but some property owners are in violation of this rule. Is it feasible to amend only the specific section of the CCNRs for a quicker and more cost-effective resolution? Hmm. I'm not really sure. Okay, so I understand that you've got a lot of rentals, right? And new property owners are now registering their home as a second residence, and then they're renting them out. There's a minimum 30-day rental period, but some owners are violating that by renting apparently for less than 30 days. So I'm not exactly sure what you want to amend the CCNRs for a quicker and more cost-effective resolution. I don't think you need to. I think if your CCNRs say minimum 30-day rental period, it's a minimum 30-day rental period. And maybe somebody's calling this their second home, but if they're violating the CCNRs by renting it out immediately for less than 30 days, you have every right to enforce that. You no need to amend your CCNRs. Okay, next question, 23. As I read the legislation, the HOA will retain parking on our streets, correct? There is no additional legal enforcement. All of their services will be retained by the city, such as maintenance, policing of crimes, no plowing. Okay, again, we talked a little bit about this legislation a few minutes ago. You have to be an HOA is kind of the first requirement. And if you, the streets have to be dedicated to the city, town, municipality, or the public. And the HOA has to have regulations regarding the streets. And so for the HOA to be able to keep their parking control for these associations that fall under this particular new law, you have to have a vote of the membership to keep the ability to enforce them. But this doesn't in any way affect, you know, the city maintaining the streets or snow plowing or whatever. I mean, not that you have any snow plowing in Arizona, but um, maybe street sweeping would be a good example or trash removal. This law does not in any way affect those city services. Next question, number 27, our annual meeting of 124 homeowners is in February of 2024. Recently, our president resigned as president, but is remaining on our board of four members plus two alternates. If the current vice president nor the other board members and alternates at this time do not want to take over the presidency position, can two board members share the position of the presidency to get us through the next few months, few months until our annual meeting, which they are willing to do? So it's November, right? We've got four months until your annual meeting in February. I think what you could do is you could share the position. Sure. I mean, it's kind of unusual. We don't usually do that. Or you could just act without a president and just have the two people stepping up to help for the next four months. Good thing here is that you've got people that are willing to step up and help. Sometimes we're in a situation where no one wants to be the president and no one's willing to step up to move into that role. And that becomes really difficult. So I would just say share responsibilities as a board. You don't necessarily have to have the figurehead title president. If you want to have people share the position, it's probably not in your bylaws that they can do that. But I think for four months, it's fine. Okay, question number 25. I live across the way from our complex maintenance garage. Yesterday, I spotted that the door was open and walked over wondering 
who could be in there since we no longer have a maintenance man as of 10-31-2023. I found two women in the garage. Neither of them were on the board. One is an owner and one is a renter. The owner is running for the board this November. What can I do with this information? I've shared this information with our board members asking, should we involve our management company and reaching out to her asking what she is doing in place where she had no business being? Okay, interesting question. I would probably the biggest concern to me is why is that door unsecured? That door should be locked. There's the maintenance garage probably has a lot of heavy equipment and chemicals and paint and all that kind of stuff. So I would say make sure that that door is locked going forward. I mean, of course, you can ask the management company to reach out to these two persons, the owner and then the renter, and just remind them that they are not allowed to be in this area without permission. You certainly have the right to do that, but just locking the door is going to handle that without having any drama. Okay, question number 26. Can we find owners that don't return renter information forms or withhold the use of the pool? Okay, so great question. Under the law, the owners have to provide the rental information that the law says that they have to comply with, and that is going to be the name of the renters, the adults that are living in the property, their license plate numbers, vehicle descriptions, how long the tenancy or the lease is going to be, and then if you're 55 and over community, proof of the age of at least one resident is 55 or over. If they don't provide that information, there is a specific statute that talks about this. So they have to pay $25. You can charge up $25 for each change in tenancy by law. And then if they don't pay, if they don't pay the $25 and they don't provide the information, you can charge an extra $15 under the law. That's the maximum amount that you can charge. Now I have to see your documents to see if if they don't pay those charges after giving them notice that they're supposed to pay it. Can you suspend your right to use the common areas for owing money to the association? I'd have to check your documents to see if that's the case. Okay, question number 27. My association does not ask for volunteers. The HOA sends out a ballot with their names to vote on. They then say you can write in the name of anyone. You would like to be on the board, but do not have them on the ballot. They did this last year and are doing the same thing this year. I was the board president and this seems illegal. How can I stop this non-inclusive method of voting? Okay, so it sounds like your board, you know, is about ready to have an annual meeting. And what they do is they send a ballot with, you know, names of people. I don't know how they get the names. Maybe it's incumbents who are running for the board. And then they have write-in areas where people can write their names in. I think we can all agree that being a write-in candidate is an uphill battle. It's very hard to get elected because people have to know that you're willing to run for the board and they have to know what to write it in, they have to know how to spell your name, et cetera. Here's what I would recommend going forward. This is kind of unusual. Basically, every association should map out prior to the annual meeting, 60 to 90 days prior to the annual meeting, that they send a letter out to the membership asking for candidates, anybody willing to run for the board. And then ask for the candidates to submit a bio or whatever, answer questions that they may have. And then they put that with the information on the ballot when they send it out so people can understand why someone's running for the board, their history, et cetera. Your association doesn't do that. You know when your annual meeting is, right? Because this is your association. So maybe 100 days before the annual meeting, you need to start full court pressing the board and the management company to say, please send out a letter to the membership. Okay, if they refuse to do that, the letter to the membership would be saying, you know, if you're interested in being on the board, let us know. If they refuse to do that, you could choose to do that as an owner um, and then get names or you could call people, get names, find people that might be willing to run to the board and ask to be included on the ballot before the ballot gets sent out. Now, if they refuse to do that, that is problematic and I think potentially could be a lawsuit. I mean, the purpose of having an annual meeting is to try to find the best candidate to serve on that board. So if they're refusing you the opportunity and saying, oh, no, you can only do this if you're a writing candidate, I don't think a court is going to like that at all. So I would just document things well in advance of the annual meeting of asking to be on the ballot. And if they fail to put you on the ballot, then you may have a cause of action. Next question is, we want to repair and paint or we need to repair and paint one of our buildings this year. Next year, we will be doing remaining buildings and seek a special assessment to cover the cost. 
can we also include that we achieve for the first building? We will be taking the money from our reserve account for the first building. Due to weather damage, we can't wait until next year for the first building. So yes, I'm okay with that. Basically, you're fronting the money and then probably the way that you want to word it is that when you send the ballot out, you just say exactly what happened. This is, we had to do one building. Now we're going to be doing the remaining buildings. And so we're asking for a special assessment for the remaining buildings. And you can either word it as, and to reimburse for the first building, or you can say, or to replace the money that we use from the reserve fund for the first building. But I think you definitely can do that. Okay, question 29. Can you provide any clarification on this statement from our management company? We are seeing a rise in restrictions for any government-backed housing loans. Lenders will not approve a loan without the fidelity bond of three times the monthly assessments plus the reserve amount. Additionally, Fannie Mae now requires condos to allocate 10% towards their reserves. Does this mean that 10% of the annual proposed budget needs to be allocated towards reserves or does it mean something else? Okay, a couple things. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are federal lending institutions. And basically, in order to get loans, in order for owners in your association to get loans from these Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, they have to apply. And as part of that application process, they ask for information about the association. And there are requirements that change from time to time. And I think that the statements that they're making here are pretty accurate and you do need to have reserves and they may be now requiring 10% of the budget to go towards reserves. Now there's arguments on that. Like let's say your reserve is already fully funded then you may not have to do that, the 10%, because if you already had 100% funding, it doesn't make sense to continue to overfund it. I think you have to look at this on a case-by-case basis, but what they're saying is true. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do have specific requirements. They're in place to make sure that the association is stable, financially stable, because they don't want to get a loan to somebody and then have the loan not get paid because the association is falling apart and doing major special assessments. And because of that, the owner has to walk away from the property and then default on the loan. So there's a reason why they're doing this. It's to make sure that the association is financially stable. Okay, next question, number 30 out of 41 questions. Okay, so the next question is, our CCNRs state that residents must accompany their guests to the pool area and that a board member may request that a person using the pool identify him or herself and his or her guests. May we also legally ask where they live, which residents they are visiting. Okay, so your documents have a specific rule saying that owners have to or residents have to be with their guests at the pool and that a board member can ask the person to identify him, herself, or their guests. Maybe also legally ask where they live, which residents are visiting. I mean, this seems like a little bit of an overkill. Honestly, you know, it's unusual that a board member would be, you know, going up to person at the pool asking, hey, can you identify yourselves and your guest um, and where they live, et cetera? It seems like it might be a little bit overreaching. But if you do have something in your rules on this, certainly you might even want to put it in your pool rules that officer of the association can ask you for this. It does just seem kind of overreaching, though, in my opinion. Okay, question number 31, 55 plus mobile subdivision. Can we have a rule in our CCNRs that states that any mobile home that's now sold older than a 1973 parentheses code changes be removed and replaced with a 20-year-old model or newer? The mobile homes have their own laws and I'm not not a specialist in mobile homes. So I'm going to kind of you know, refrain from giving an official answer on this. I think you probably need to go to somebody who specializes in mobile homes. There's a whole mobile homes act in Arizona. I'm assuming that if it's in your CCNRs, so it's similar to our CCNRs, that if it's passed and amended in your CCNRs, that, that likely would be enforceable. Okay, question number 32. There is property here in our community that is extremely behind in paying their association fees. A legal owner has been deceased for many years. She and her parents were the ones, only ones listed on the deed. Her husband had been living in there for many years, but never transferred the deed in his name and has not kept current with the association fees since her death. 
We've tried to work with him to get the account current, but with no success. Property is now in an abatement situation with the city. We need to place a lien on the property for non-payment of association dues. How and where can we send the lien notice since the legal owner is deceased and the property is in abatement? Okay, so I think you definitely need to get your attorney involved in this. I think I'm, I'm your attorney, your general counsel attorney, just looking at the familiarity of the name here. The property can be leaned under the estate of this person's name. And I think a couple of things that I would do is I'd love to see, is there a mortgage or deed of trust on the property? And if so, we may need to notify the mortgage or deed of trust company that the, the owner has passed away. You know, we want to look at the debt to credit equity in the property. Is this property underwater? Is this owned free and clear? And if they are not paying the assessments, we definitely want to lean the estate and decide what's the best way to get the, the money back from the owner, the ceased owner, but the ownership of the estate and property. I'm not really sure how the abatement is working. You know, I'm guessing that the property is now in abatement. Usually that means there's like a violation. So I don't think that's going to necessarily affect the, the ownership here. It's just the city's on them to get this issue corrected. So I think reach out to your attorney on this one. I would lean the property, do some credit evaluation on the state to see, you know, if the property's underwater, if it's paid in full and there's equity, and then come up with a plan to get this paid. This should be paid. Um, you just have to push the right buttons. So I recommend that you reach out to us so we can talk about it. Okay, question 33. With House Bill 2251, we are concerned that owners will open claims for smaller dollar amounts, which could significantly increase premiums or impact the HOA's ability to get insurance down the road. HOA has always paid for small damages using operating funds to prevent premium increases. What are strategies for preventing frivolous claim filing? We currently have a 5K deductible. Should we increase that to 10K? Other suggestions? I mean, obviously increasing the deductible higher is going to make small claims go away. You're not going to make a claim for 8,000 when the deductible is 10, right? That just doesn't make business sense. I mean, I think what you should do is the owners will come to you. They have to come to you under the law before they make a claim on the association's insurance. And that's a really good opportunity to talk about the claim with the owner and explain that you may be making your $5,000 deductible, maybe there's $6,000 in damages. It doesn't make sense maybe to make that claim because it's a black mark on our insurance. Just try to reason with the owner, get the association's attorney involved, maybe the insurance agent. Um, but ultimately under this new law, the homeowners do have rights. And if they want to proceed forward with it and the insurance company accepts it, we probably are going to have to be stuck with them, you know, getting coverage under this particular you know, new law. But remember, in a condominium, you're already on the hook for the insurance. It's a matter of managing the claim. You're going to always be the primary in a condo, meaning our insurance is primary, the homeowner's insurance is secondary. You're going to have claims, right? We want to manage the claims so that we're not making frivolous claims, but you are going to have claims. That's a business thing. You got to just understand that that's going to happen and that increases are going to happen when there are multiple claims in a year. Okay, next question, number 34. When election to the board shall be by secret written ballot or oral vote, is it appropriate to request on that ballot that the homeowner's name and unit number and provide that owner to another homeowner requesting that documentation? Okay, so if the ballot is a secret ballot, you cannot have the owner's name and unit number on the ballot. Okay, that's that is not allowed. How it works is there's a double envelope system. There's an outside envelope that has the name and the unit number or the name, the lot number of the owner and their signature. And then they place the ballot inside a second envelope that's unmarked. And then that unmarked ballot and the envelope that's on, I mean, the, the ballot is executed, right? No name, no identifier, no unit number, no lot number. It's placed in the outside ballot envelope, no identifier. And then that ballot and envelope is placed inside another envelope that has the identifier on it. So, you know, secret ballots are a nightmare. I hate dealing with them because there's so many ways that owners get confused and make a mistake and then we can't count the ballot. Bottom line is, answer your question, if it's a secret ballot, there should be no identifier on the ballot and owners will not be allowed to see how people voted because it'll be secret. You can send in the ballots, but it's not going to have identifiers on them. Okay, question 35 looks like out of 41. 
Assume an HOA with fewer than 50 homes and resident delinquencies in the payment of monthly dues and assessments are rare. To what extent, if any, is the HOA affirmatively required to provide residents with periodic invoices or statements of account? Okay, great question. Several years ago, there was a law that was passed by our legislature that says that we have to provide a statement of account to every owner every time there's a payment due, and that there's a payment cycle. So right now, you're supposed to be providing that to um, your owners. Now, there's some exceptions to that. Like, are you managed by a management company and is the size of your association a certain size? So what I would do is reach out to our firm and we can take a quick peek at that for you to determine if you're one of those associations that falls into that category where you have to provide the statement of account every month to the owner if your assessments are monthly. Question number 36. My 2023 term started in January 1st. But after our recent annual meeting, our new community management company said the terms start right after elections. Our bylaws do not specify other than our fiscal year runs January to December. Our bylaws say one-year terms, but I won't have a full year here. Does the nonprofit act kick in? And if so, how does that relate to the specification that the terms are one year, even if we've done it incorrectly in the past? Okay, so great question. I'd want to look at your documents, your CCNRs, your bylaws, your articles of incorporation to determine when your term started. Usually it is from the time that you're elected. So you're elected at the annual meeting, usually it starts right then there, unless the bylaws typically say, you know, you're elected in November, but your term doesn't actually start until January 1st. Just because your fiscal year is a certain way in your documents does not affect the terms. So I'd have to look at your documents to give you a more specific answer on that. Next question, running for the board. Have you heard any issues regarding the Calway versus Calabria Ranch HOA decision, such as it being applied to previously recorded CCNR amendments to the original documents? So it's been all quiet on the Calway versus Calabria Ranch front. Obviously, that case was decided last year um, that talks about associations needing to be very careful how they handle amendments. There's certain criteria that they have to follow. There's nothing new on that. I guess that's the bottom line. How is it being applied to previously recorded CCNR amendments? I haven't seen any going back cases, meaning that owners are trying to go backwards and say, hey, you didn't have the right to amend the CCNRs under Calway. I have not seen that happen. And I don't think that will happen. Okay, last four questions. One of our homeowners has several broken and loose tiles due to damage of the foundation and concrete floor. Is it correct to assume that because the foundation is a common element, then any damage caused by the common element is the responsibility of the HOA, meaning we pay for the repairs? Also, does this mean that the HOA has to go the extra mile and shop for matching tiles and find someone to do the repair, or is that part of the homeowner's responsibility? Okay, so it sounds like you, I don't know if you are a condo or a plant community, but it seems like you're a plant community based on how you worded the question. So you have a homeowner who has broken tiles and loose tiles due to the damage of the foundation and concrete floor. Okay, so I'm assuming what that means is that the foundation somehow buckled maybe, and that's because it, we're responsible for the foundation. It's going pushing back to us. So if the association is required to pay for the repairs, which it seems like based upon the facts here, we are, you know, we should do our best to shop for the matching tiles or replace the area so that it looks nice with something similar. Um, and we likely do have to find somebody to do the repair. We shouldn't be pushing this on the homeowner if it was actually worth the root cause, something that we're responsible for maintaining as a root cause. Okay, get your attorney involved in that though, because those are always kind of tricky because sometimes, like especially with Sautio tile, you can't match it. So you have to maybe even redo the whole room and that gets expensive. Okay, next question, number 39. Are statements required to be mailed each month even if the homeowner wants it sent via email? Great question. We heard somebody talking about this a few minutes ago, same type of question. So have the owner opt out of the U.S. mail and ask them to opt in to email, and then you should be fine on this. Okay, last two questions. Are CCNRs required 30 days notice of an association vote to increase the annual assessment? 
the board does not yet have all of the financial information necessary to produce a ballot. Can we provide notice of the meeting as a place saver and deliver the ballot a week later when the board receives all relevant information? Yes, you can do that, but you just have to be careful that you're meeting the requirements. Your The notice of the meeting typically under the law has to be sent out not less than 10, not more than 50 days in advance of the meeting. Looks like your documents require 30 days. So you're going to need to get out that notice within 30 days. And that falls within the timeline under the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act to get out the notice of the meeting of the membership. As long as you send out the ballot, I think the requirement is it can't be less than seven days before the the meeting where you're going to be voting on it. You will be fine under the law. But honestly, seven days is not enough. So get that out fast as possible so that you get people an opportunity to be able to get it back to you. Hey, last question. Can the same board member be both co-president and co-secretary? There are five to seven board members at any one time. Our documents specify at least five board members. So if your documents don't prohibit that, having one officer combining and doing two, two jobs, president and secretary, you're fine with doing that. Conclusion, we're at the end now. We got through 41 questions today, which is awesome. We got through in about an hour and 15 minutes, which is great timing. We apologize for the audio issue at the beginning of the Zoom. I'm so sorry about that. Thank you so much for everybody letting us know about it right away so we could correct it. It was just a small portion of the introduction, and we appreciate you being so nice and telling us in a kind way that, hey, we can't hear or we can't hear very well. Thanks for letting us know. We're sorry about that technical difficulty. Thank you for joining us here today. We had over 84 attendees um, on Zoom and 13 live viewers on Facebook. So great attendance for November 2023. Don't forget, I mentioned earlier during the presentation that we have our November 2023 virtual HOA condominium uh, academy class um, on Tuesday, November 14th at 11 a.m., in this class, we're going to be looking at somebody to talk a little bit about the new legislation and how it impacts your association directly. The new Arizona legislation that just went into effect on Monday. We're going to be talking about what are the secrets that make associations successful, including, you know, how to be a stellar board. What are the things you should do? What are the things you shouldn't do? And then last, we're going to talk about how to avoid and overcome internal board conflict. So if you guys are fighting or having difficulties on your board, we're going to be covering that as well. And then as always, we're going to have a, the free question and answer at the end of that presentation on November 14th. So we'll stay until we answer every single question. Our next live virtual First Friday event is going to be Friday, December 1st. How could it be December almost already? Crazy. This is also going to be combined with our firm's HOA or Condominium Academy class number 12. So what we do in December is because it gets really busy with the holidays, we do this in November too. So we're, as you probably can tell, we moved up the virtual HOA condominium academy class in November a week because it would have been the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week. And I think we all can agree that that's not the best week because people are traveling. So for our November HOA condominium academy class, it's going to be the second Tuesday in November, November 14th at 11 a.m. And then in December, we did this. We've been doing this now a couple of years. We're combining our first Friday event in December with our HOA um, virtual HOA and condominium academy. And we're going to be um, talking about, we're just going to be doing questions and answers for the whole time period. So the first Friday in December is going to be a combo class and it's going to be all questions. So come with your questions. I think we called it like deck the halls with questions. So we'll be ready to answer any question that you have. It'll probably go a little longer than normal because we're going to have a lot of people showing up for that with their questions. We're also going to be talking about during the December 1st, first Friday and neighborhood services, HRA Academy class, tips for keeping your community festive and safe during the holiday season. And we're going to wrap up 2023 with question and answer session, and we will answer every question before we sign off for December. Um, lastly, we really appreciate, genuinely appreciate it when you leave us reviews um, on Google. We are going to be sharing a link in the chat on how to leave a review. We are very happy to get feedback, positive and negative, from our customers and from our clients and from those of you who listen in our classes. 
so that we can continue to improve our services and provide feedback to the neighborhood services that we work with, that these classes are valuable and helpful to owners, board members, and managers. So if you wouldn't mind, I want to personally appeal to you, please give us a Google review and let us know how we're doing. And we're going to be sharing that link with you here soon. Lastly, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I hope you have a wonderful holiday with your families. We'll look forward to seeing you before then, like I said, on Tuesday, November 14th for HOA Condominium Academy. So we'll see you later this month. And then our final event for 2023 is going to be our December Q&A on our virtual First Fridays event. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us here today. Again, sorry for the brief technical difficulties at the beginning of this class. Take care. Have a great week. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 